as we do our journey through this wonderful epistle of Colossians. We'll continue today. Moving out of verse 9 into verse 10, I have to be transparent. I, in preparation this week, was looking back through some things, and, and there's still so much more that could be said about verse 9, but I know that um, it's important that we, we do make some progress, um, I guess. I don't know. I mean, it's all good, right? We're all just going to heaven anyway, so we we'll, might as well just take our time enjoying what we have here on the journey to the celestial city. Before we get into our text today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's meditate upon his word. Isaiah 51, 7 through 8 says, Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Let us pray. Ransoming, Lord, we confess that we do not listen to you or remember who you are. We are quick to forget that you stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth with a word. You created us and everyone around us, and you alone are from everlasting to everlasting. You are the one who judges all men in righteousness and truth. Because we often forget this truth, we fear and worship people instead of you and give them the power to cast us into despair by their judgments of us. Instead of trusting and rejoicing in your verdict of not guilty, we are undone by their displeasure and devastated by their criticism. Sometimes they revile us for our actions and we are crushed, even though we have not broken your law, but only the laws of men. At other times, when they reproach us for truly breaking your law, we hear only their words of condemnation and not the comforting words of the gospel. When we love your righteousness and feel your law written on our hearts, we have trouble remembering your grace and forgiveness. Forgive us for that, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the perfect goodness of your Son, who knew and loved your law with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength in our place. He never feared the reproach or criticism of men, nor was dismayed at their reviling. Instead, he spoke the truth and love at all times, fearlessly serving others instead of worshiping them. Yet on the cross, he paid the deadly price for all our fear-driven adoration of the approval of men. His body was slain and bathed in blood as he withstood your fearful, fearful wrath for all our crimes. His loving hands were pierced with nails, his faithful head bloodied with thorns as he listened to the mocking ridicule of those he came to save. He cried out in anguish so that we would never know the anguish of trying to pay for our own sin. Father, we desperately need your help to know your righteousness in all its fullness and to rest in Christ's finished work. Cause us to see the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we remember your grace as well as your justice. Dissolve our hearts in thankfulness by reminding us of the cross many times each day and drawing our hearts to be amazed by your steadfast love for us. Wean us from our addiction to glory and the admiration of others by persuading us of the truth that you delight in us every moment of every day. You love us exactly as much as you love your son, Jesus, because we are forever joined to him. May this truth melt our eyes to tears and fill us with immeasurable joy. We pray these things in the name of our blessed Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. Colossians chapter 2, 
as we continue through this amazing epistle, as we examine what Paul has for us here. He's writing to a church in Colossae that has been confronted with the teaching of a particular person, it appears, a false teacher who has come into the midst or arisen from their midst, who is advocating something other than Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes this epistle. It's a, a, a wonderful treatise on the work and person of Jesus Christ and in order to confront the empty, hollow, void teachings of the false teachers, he takes people to Jesus Christ and reminds them of all that we have in him. And that's so very important for us. So let's begin to read here, Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, we'll read through verse 15. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. Pay attention to the adjectives, the, the descriptives of what we have in Jesus Christ. Wealth, fullness, all of these things. The full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And God's people said... Amen. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Wow. Well, so much there, so much wonderful theology, so much Christ-centered exhortation. Paul, of course, is consumed with the idea of this relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. He is consumed with the work and person of Jesus Christ. He knows that it is the hope that sustains us through all trials. He would commend these very Colossi believers for their faith, their hope, and their love for each other. Interestingly, in Ephesians chapter 1, we see a similar emphasis. In that chapter, we see the phrase, in him, repeatedly 13 times, in fact. Paul wants us to think about Jesus Christ. He takes us back to him all the time. And the reason for that is to give us a bold confidence, to shore us up, to help us to be confident and assured in our salvation, if you will. He wants us to have a sense of confidence, security, or a certainty 
especially as it relates to our salvation through Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me as we look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 10, we see here that Paul contrasts um, the empty, void nature of the teachings of the false teachers with the fullness that we have in Jesus Christ. In verse 8, Paul, of course, is telling us that the false teachers are, are ones who are conveying a philosophy that is void of any truth because it's not based upon Christ. That's the point of verse 8. Paul is reminding us that their philosophy is intended to take us captive, that we ourselves, if we listen to them, become the spoil of their piracy, if you will. They are taking us captive, and they are leading us away, and the consequences of that are dire, of course, and Paul is very concerned about that. It's interesting to me that Scripture speak so much about the issue of false teachers. We have Paul's epistle written primarily here to rebut the teaching of false teachers. We have 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter, in the last days of his life, writing that short letter, takes an entire chapter to warn about the trial, the, 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 the tribulation to be brought by false teachers. Jude, of course, is, his little epistle is about that. Christ himself would warn us about the impact of false teachers. We are told that they will come. We, will told, we are told that they are in our midst. We are told that we have to be on guard, that we have to be alert. And the means by which we remain alert is to understand what we have in Jesus Christ. Paul is wanting people to be so consumed with the work and person of Jesus Christ that the very second, the very moment, anyone begins to utter anything contrary to a focus on Jesus Christ, that it's immediately rejected. There is no quarter given to those who would discuss or speak to us about something other than Jesus Christ. And that includes those who would add something to Jesus Christ. Oh, you may say, well, Pastor John, they still talk about Jesus Christ. He's exclusive. They don't get to talk about anything else. And if they do, that's a problem. If they add to things, if they bring us into the context of focusing on something else other than Jesus Christ, if that is the consequence of their service, of their worship, then they are in violation of God's word. That's why we have to be so careful about what we do in terms of our worship, how we worship, what we engage in when we worship, because people become consumed with that. They look for an experience. They want to have something that makes them feel good about themselves, something that's comfortable, something that adores man and his abilities. So we have to be cautious. That speaks to the philosophy of worship and ministry in terms of how we sing and what we do and what we present. We guard those things very cautiously here at Community Bible Church because we know the impact and influence that they can have upon people. But here Paul contrast the empty philosophy of the false teachers with the rich fullness of our union with Christ, the repeated emphasis of this fact by use of the phrase in him points not only to the emptiness of the false teachers, vain, deceptive, immature philosophy, but also points to us to Christ rather than man. Of course, Jude would tell us that the teaching of the false teachers was what? Clouds like clouds without rain, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Are you getting the message? Do you see how empty the teaching and philosophies of men are compared to Jesus Christ? That's the point that Paul is making. 
I like that this is contained in one captured in a thought. The idea begins in verse 8. It flows through verse 15. Paul is communicating to us a, a very important thing here. The idea that we are full, complete in Jesus Christ. That's the point of verse 10. Paul is driving you to understand a reality, to have a view of life, a worldview, a view of the future that is Christ-centered, not man-centered. Not looking to experiences. We have to be careful about that. I just said that. The, in, the, the, the inclination would be to add to those experiences to make us affirm what we're experiencing on a regular basis in some other dramatic way. Please, Pastor, just one more ballerina. But rather, the reality of what God has done for us in the present and what he will continue to do into the future is all tied to Jesus Christ. That's Paul's focus. It's in him. It's in him. And it ought to be in him, shouldn't it? Let's think about what Paul is saying to us here. In verse 9, he spells out for us this wonderful picture of Jesus Christ who has come to us in the full expression of the deity in bodily form. He is not just partially deity. He is not partially God. He is fully God, fully revealed in bodily form. We get to understand this, and what that does for us, too, is it lets us see him in a sympathetic way, too. I like the idea of of Christ being in bodily form because I can relate to that, can I not? The Gospels recount for us the life that he lived, the things that he did, the pain that he experienced, the the turmoil of his life as it related to who he was as the Son of God, fulfilling God's will for his own life, not asserting his own rights. As we just read in Hebrews chapter 5, he humbled himself to the will of God. And in that active and both that active and passive obedience, he became the perfect Lamb of God for me. This is why Paul does what he does in verse 10 then when he says, And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. In him. The reality of my completeness is tied to the reality of his fullness of deity. I like that. These phrases that are here kind of are unique. They stand um, uh, as, as their own phrase, but they're also joined together in a way. Because God dwells in an abiding and essential way in the Son, our union with Him necessarily makes us complete. See, you can't, verse 9 is necessary to verse 10. Verse 10 won't mean as much to me unless I fully comprehend the impact and significance of verse 9. Because in verse 9, I get to understand why I get to be complete in Him. If he's not who he is in verse 9, then I have nothing. If he's not who he says he is in that context, I have absolutely no reason to believe that I can then be complete in him. If he's not complete, I can't be complete. If he's only partially God, then I don't have a real hope. If he's only one who is somehow just, just feigning it in some sense, then I don't really have any hope. And this is an epistle of hope. What we need right now is a lot of hope, do we not? We are a beleaguered people. The world is in turmoil. Chaos surrounds us. In many respects, it may not be a whole lot different than what the Colossi believers were experiencing. Recent earthquake, devastating earthquake, trade routes changed, economy shifting. 
under the authority of a despotic, autocratic government. Difficult times, false teachers in the church. It may not have been BLM, it may not have been social justice, it may not have been woke theology, but it was tough. It certainly wasn't Christ-centered teaching that they were experienced from the false teachers. Like the church today, we're being inundated by people who were claiming the name of Christ, perhaps even as this, as this false teacher would in some ways. Oh yeah, you can have a little bit of Jesus, but you need some angels, you need some works, you need some other things. Don't touch, don't do that, be proud of what you're doing. Don't focus just on Christ. Of course, that's an error. I also like the idea that what we see in, in verse 9 and there's so much that be, could, be, could be said about this. We, it, it's just so, so rich. There's, there's rich temple imagery here as well. In verse 9, Paul says, he uses this word dwell. It carries with it that idea of inhabiting or occupying fully. The temple in the Old Testament was a mere foreshadowing, a type or a figure of what would be found fully in Christ. That's a, that's a beautiful picture for us. If you would, turn to the Gospel of John. Turn to the Gospel of John. I know some of you young folks out there have new Bibles, and so we're going to look at the Gospel of John. I hope you can find it. Moms and dads, help your kids out there. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. Such a powerful chapter. We're going to be looking at verse 14. We see here John using the same type of imagery, this glory language, which was associated with the temple. He uses this word dwelt, John 1.14, writing, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the same idea that Paul is communicating in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, and carries over to the impact in verse 10 for us in terms of our completeness in Jesus Christ. What we have in Jesus Christ is the full demonstration of God. Christ now is my Sabbath. He is my rest. What a beautiful picture this is for us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace, and importantly, what? Truth. 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 Yes, we can know truth. We've talked about the conundrum that people seem to face when dealing with the issue of truth. It seems to be unfair that you would know the truth and I could not. So therefore, we can't know the truth. So let's synthesize everything that we think and feel and believe, and let's make our own truth, which is no truth at all right? And as a consequence of that, we take our eyes off of Christ. So for Paul, it's important for his audience to understand that because the indwelling fullness of God is firmly linked with the incarnate Christ, just like John states in 1.14, this speaks to the wonders and glories of the incarnation, Christ, God in bodily form as demonstrated through Jesus Christ. Because of this truth about Christ, because he is the full expression, all the fullness of the deity dwells in him, I can be confident that I can be then fully complete in him. Well, this phrase that Paul uses both in verse 9 and moving into verse 10 is clearly an attack on the heresy being pushed onto the Colossi faithful of supporting that completeness could not be found 
in Christ alone, but must be sought by additional religious rites and beliefs. But of course, Paul would hearken back to Romans 8.32, which contains the same idea, he who did not spare his own son, how shall he not freely give us all things in him? I no longer stand condemned before God. I stand before him as an adopted son, complete in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And this completeness speaks to the right standing before God in Christ. There's overtones of justification, sanctification, adoption, all the benefits of being complete in Christ. John would say in that same chapter we just read from in verse 16, for of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. So ultimately, Paul is saying to these Colossi believers, in conjunction with teasing out the emptiness, the hollowness, the immaturity of the false teachers, that they don't need the help of any subordinate beings, be they demonic or angelic, for they are in Christ. They need no supplementary wisdom or knowledge or salvation For they have been and are full in him. There is a present state of fullness of completedness. Please, John Piper, understand that. There's also this idea of a vivid first and second Adam imagery. I'm telling you, there's so much here. You can't hardly plumb the depths of these two little verses. Think about it for a minute. When we look at verse 9, I see a man in that verse. Do I not? I see Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? He's the second Adam. Why do I need a second Adam? Because the first Adam failed miserably, did he not? I need this man. I need him in bodily form. If he isn't, I'm hopeless. If he's a mere ethereal spirit drifting about somewhere, that's of no benefit to me. I need a second Adam. I need this man. I need him to be all that Paul describes him to be. I need him to be full and complete and perfect so I can be too. This speaks to federal headship. This speaks to authority. This speaks to the idea that I can stand in the finished work of Jesus Christ with full confidence that, the Lord, that God has accepted it. This is my son in whom I am well pleased When Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished, he he made the declaration in the context of of giving up and offering his life for the salvation of God's people. Matthew 1, 21, he will come to save his people from their sins. His people. His people. There's a S. S. Lewis Johnson in, in discussing this particular passage used a, a really remarkable illustration that I want to share with you. He's speaking to the idea that it follows naturally and inevitably that in having Christ, we have all. And, and there's, a, there's an illustration that he, he uses to point this out. He points out that, um, that there's a picture of being joined. Um, Using that imagery, um, though, though there wasn't really surgery at this point in time where you could join members of the human body, the idea is employed by Paul in part in 1 Corinthians twelve eighteen. And that's Lewis Johnson said that, consider a most honorable man, perhaps the leader of a country, a king, a president, if you will, having lost one of his hands, 
acquiring by surgery another one from a notorious murderer whose death sentence was commuted to life imprisonment in return for the surrender of his hand. The criminal's hand, whose fingerprints were on file in police headquarters and which was stained with murder, was associated formally with guilt and shame. Now, however, being united to this honorable person, this president, king, whomever, it partook of all the dignity, honor, and authority of the president's position and office. In a similar manner, believers formerly associated with the first Adam and partakers of his sin and guilt have been grafted into the last Adam and now share in all that he is. That's what Paul's talking about here. So, so listen, so in verse 9, I'm understanding that this second Adam is the full expression of God in bodily form, that all the fullness of the deity dwells in him, and that when he did what he did, he did it in complete conformity with God's law, with God's mandate, with God's will. And as a consequence of that, when I move into verse 10, anchored to the truths of verse 9, I can stand firmly on the finished work of Jesus Christ, knowing that I am now and will forever be complete in him. Listen, this is why we have to understand the difference between justification and sanctification. I've said this before. I am as justified today at 56 years old as on the day that God saved me as a young man. I am no more justified. Do I know more about Christ today than I did when I, was, when I was a young man? Of course I do. But I'm no more justified. Why is that? Because I'm in Jesus Christ who is complete. If he's complete, I'm complete. What else do I have to do? What else could I do? What else could I add to the completeness, the fullness of Jesus Christ? It's absurd to assert that somehow, in some way, at the end of my life, I'm going to be able to add something to achieve my final justification or my future salvation. I will say it. That's a damnable heresy. It truly is. It robs me of my assurance. What confidence can I have? How much is enough? How will I ever know if I've reached it? Do you know that you can sit here today in that pew and you can know with confidence that you are complete in Jesus Christ right now? And nothing can take that from you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, even your own sin. When Jesus Christ saved you, he knew that you could be a horrid sinner. He knew that you would sin, and he paid for it on the cross. That's why Paul can say in chapter 1, this all reaches back into the reconciliation theology of chapter 1. We who were alienated, hostile in mind towards God, are now reconciled to him in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the fullness of all the deity expressed in bodily form. And because of that, I'm complete. I am finished with all those other things. I am new creation in Christ Jesus. This, this is why we have to be so careful about what we preach. People will embrace pure religion, morality. But when we get down to the nitty-gritty of ecclesiastical faith, we're considered to be superstitious and divisive. This is why so many churches today, and we're surrounded by them, treat religion as private therapy to improve our lives and make us better people but treat it as public truth, good news to the whole world, and it provokes tremendous offense. 
It's amazing to me that what I've just told you is offensive to people. People don't want that. What do you mean? I'm going to do some things too. I'm going to add to it. I've got some skin in the game. It's about me. Don't you dare tell me it's not about me. That's, of course, what the false teachers were doing. This is why the churches are doing what they're doing today. They're entertaining people. They're coddling them. They're maneuvering. They're giving them this therapeutic moral deism rather than the content of Scripture, which is Christ crucified, dead men reconciled to God who are now complete in Christ. It's a shame. It's just just a shame. I'm in shock at what's going on around us in, in, in this community. I fear for so many pastors' souls for what they're doing. I can't believe it. Look at the warnings that are issued to false teachers, people who would lead people astray. Christ would call them hirelings. Peter uses such vivid language in 2 Peter 2 that you're in shock as you're reading it. They're vile, detestable, they're horrid. Paul calls them dogs. Jude doesn't spare any words either. How important do you think this is? It's insanely important. Listen to me, too, for this. Think about it for a moment. In verse 9, I see Christ in bodily form. He is that second Adam. What, what did Adam do after he sinned? He hid. Adam, where are you? Where are you, Adam? Well, he had been walking with God in the cool of the evening, of course. But now, all of a sudden, he was hiding He was attempting to cover himself with what he perceived to be his own goodness. He was hiding from God. But Adam had sinned, and he was separated from God. And now I need another Adam, and he comes to me in the form of Jesus Christ. What is Christmas about? It's about the incarnation of God. He comes in bodily form in Jesus Christ. Why? Because I need a Savior who can fulfill all that God requires. That's the joyful message of Christmas, of course. Well, let's unpackage. Let's unpackage the words in verse 10. And in him, so everything is tied to Jesus Christ. I want you to think about this for a minute. It's really interesting in my Bible, which is the best Bible you can have. (laughs) But it's interesting that the way the words set up, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, the in hymns are all in line. I don't take any meaning from that. But nonetheless, it's kind of neat. That word, so that word is important, right? In him, verse 9, verse 10, in him, verse 11, in him. In him, in him, in him. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1. You're going to see it over and over again. In him, in him, in him. 13 times. That's important theology for Paul. Now, as I understand that, I'm seeing that it's in him that I am complete. The word also can be full. And in him you have been made full. Okay? It's tying back into verse 9, of course. This, this points to the idea of the ongoing and continuous nature of our position in him. Now, there is amazing, rich theology here. Now, the fact that the Colossians are in him is really not the significant news here. It's significant, but it's not the main punch, if you will. Paul, the, the Colossi believers are getting this idea so far. They, they, of course, they got through chapter one. Well, it wasn't a chapter, but they got through that part of it. It wasn't a chapter and a verse until much later in history. If you didn't know that, that's, that's for free. Um, 
So the Colossians are in him, of course. This has been well established. The revelation, however, is that they have been made complete in him. Oh, well, that's profound. That's significant truth. It's interesting that in verse 9, for in him all the fullness of the deity dwells. That's a noun. That's a description, right? Verse 10, it's a verb. You have been made full. So now I'm seeing this in a different way. Paul transitions over from the description of of Christ. We have been made complete now in him. And so the noun in verse 10 is used to describe what is true of Christ. Okay? It's important. Grammar is important. So the noun in verse 9 describes what is true of Christ. In verse 10, the verb describes what is true of the believer because of who Christ is. In the previous verse, the noun designated the completeness, totality, or superabundance of the deity filling Christ. Here, the verb describes the state of the believer. The perfect tense points to past action which has been completed and has now been brought about in an abiding state. The voice that's used. Paul's using the passive voice. Look, in verse 10, and in him it says what? You have been made complete. Okay? Passive voice. That's important. This indicates that God is the active agent. He is the active agent in the making of the completeness in somebody else other than yourself. And that someone else is who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. That's why I get the rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So beautiful. So rich. So rich. Now, we can continue to look at the language here, which is so important for us to comprehend. Let's let's continue to critique the language. As we look at verse 10, And in him you have been made complete. And we're going to get to the other part of verse 10 at some point in time. But we're going to to dwell here with this idea of being made complete, the idea that it contains. Having dwelt, or having dealt rather, with the fact that Jesus Christ represents the fullness of God, Paul here is dealing with the significance of that truth to the individual believer and to the church as a whole. Of course, because Jesus Christ embodies the fullness of God, believers in him have been made full or complete. Okay? So, Paul is making certain that they understand a very essential truth, and that is they don't need anything else but Christ. This is Christ alone theology, okay? Christ alone. Of course, the reformers would reach into this and develop a rich body of theology that would stand in stark contrast to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church because the Roman Catholic Church taught something else, that you weren't complete in Jesus Christ. 
that you needed to add some of your own goodness to what Christ was providing too, as well as what the saints could provide. So you prayed to saints, you prayed to Mary, you got some merit from them because they had a superabundance of merit. Oh, really, they did. That's what they, that's what they taught. And so you would, you would access their superabundance of merit, and some of that merit would be given to you, plus along with some of your merit and with some of the merit of Jesus. No, that's not what we're seeing, is it? Now, if you read this, you see plain, plainly, and you have been made complete. In who? Jesus Christ, in him, not Mary, not Paul, not Peter, You would think that if Paul had some extra merit, he might tell the Colossians about it. Right? I'm I'm serious. You you would think that a guy who would have as much extra merit as Paul has, he would kind of share some with these poor beleaguered Christians. You would think that was pretty stingy of him not to do that. Then why doesn't he add his name into the verse? Because Paul would say what? He was a wretched sinner. Vile. So, so let's, let's analyze, if you will, the significance of the statement, you have been made complete, or you have been made full. This matches the word fullness in verse 9. And to carry through the thought which limits us to the translation of this idea of having been made full. Made complete. Filled up having everything we need for perfection in Christ. So, even as there is total fullness, completeness, and perfection in God and Christ, likewise, we, the redeemed of God, in Christ, share in the same fullness, completeness, and perfection of Him. Do you see this? Paul's argument is that since the fullness of God resides in Christ... And because of their imposition in Christ, that's the word I-N-P-O-S-I-T-I-O-N, imposition in Christ, they have been made full too in the eyes of God. And that's all that matters. Therefore, it would be utterly absurd and ridiculous to try to add anything to their full and complete position in Jesus Christ. I love the way that Paul argues. Verse 8 traditions of men. It's immature. It's vain. It's deceptive. It's hollow. There's no Christ rather than Christ. That's what he says at the end of verse 8, right? But now I get to verse 9 and verse 10. It's all about Jesus Christ. It is all about Jesus Christ because one, I need a second Adam. Two, I am incomplete into myself. I can't do anything to merit anything. Even my very best is filthiness, wretched and vile as I am. And so I have Jesus Christ. So now it gets even better. Think about this. We need to consider the importance of Paul putting this phrase in the passive voice and in the perfect tense. The passive voice indicates that the Colossian believers were the recipients of the action. They had not made themselves full in Christ, but God in his sovereignty who had put them in Christ through the Holy Spirit was the one who had made them full and complete in Christ. This is God's sovereign prerogative to save his people by and through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. 
The cross is an offense to some, but the cross is my hope because in that I see that God was doing something for me. He was working out the plan to make me complete in Christ. God provides both their fullness and completeness in Christ as well as their placement in Christ. Therefore, both the fullness and obtaining it were provided by who? God. How you get around, I don't, I mean, listen, there's no free will in verse 9 or 10. What God is doing, God is doing according to his sovereign prerogative to save his people from their sin by and through Christ alone. He is the expression of God, the fullness of deity in bodily form. And because of that, I can now and am complete in him. Go back for a minute. Think about this for a minute. Let's not forget the context, the predicate foundation that is laid by Paul to explain this. Go back to chapter 1. Look at verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Verse 21, don't forget, and I want you to reach, I want you to hold on to what we just read in verses 9 and 10 in chapter 2, and I want you to think about the meaning of that now in the context of what Paul says about you in verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, you were in a state of fixed hostility. That's what the word hostile means, enmity. Yet he... He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body. There's that body again. How important is the second Adam through death? Why? In order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Christ saves you, picks you up, and sets you right down in front of God, and he says, he is mine. And he is complete in me, and the Father says, welcome to the family. That's salvation. That's new birth. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Paul and Galatians, do you see what's happening? It, it all begins to make sense when you think about, too, why he would say then in chapter 2 about this issue of having gratitude and overflowing with gratitude at the end of verse 7. Why is Paul so jealously guarding this position that we have in Jesus Christ? Why is he being so forceful in confronting the false teachers? Because he knows that their theology, their empty, deceptive philosophy captures man's imagination and it robs him of their joy. In Christ. This is what people need today. This is why people need the Lord. I love that song. People need the Lord. You walk past them, their faces, their eyes are hollow, their lives are miserable. People need the Lord. They stand condemned. They are the people who have been described in verse 21. 
as were you before God so graciously saved you. Now, think about this for a minute. Think about this. Go back. You think, you think we'd be done. Some of you perhaps wish we were, but I'm not, I'm not quite there yet. And in him, you have been made complete. The idea of this tense that Paul uses as well indicates just how secure we are in our full and complete position in Christ. The idea that Paul is conveying here is that not only am I complete in him when he saves me, but he continues to keep me complete in him all through my life. I am always complete in Christ. Always. Always. Romans, nothing can separate me from the love of God. Nothing. Romans 8.32, he didn't spare his own son. Would he not give me all things? Of course he does. John 1.14, fullness, complete. I'm in him. God has declared it so. So the idea of my position is not a temporary one when I'm saved. Now, this is, this is important. When he saves me, it's not just a temporary completeness that I have to maintain. Now, think about that for a minute. I am positionally sanctified. All the work of Jesus Christ, all of his goodness, all of his, all of his attitudes, responses, actions, living, walking, talking, thinking are mine. In mine. I'm positionally sanctified. God sees Christ's works as my works. Now, do I grieve him when I sin? Oh, no doubt. But he doesn't separate me from himself. He doesn't separate me ever. As vile and as wicked as my sin can be, he never casts me out. He can't. Why can't he? Because he is immutable. He never changes. And if he told me in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, that in Christ the deity fully dwells and I am complete in him, I can always take that to the bank. He'll never change that. Ever. Even in your darkest moment, there is light in Christ. Now, how's your gratitude? Huh? Have you thought about that? This is, this is so powerful. I don't know how, this is like, I know that Romans, Romans is like Mount Everest and chapter 8 is the Mount Everest peak of the Bible, but Colossians chapter 2, 9, and 10 might be like K2 or something else next, right next to it, you know? You're just a few meters below. Maybe not. Maybe it's an even mountain. I don't know. This is so powerful. If, if people would only understand this, think of the difference it would make in what's being say, said in churches today. Christ is my second Adam. I have been made complete in him. I will, be, I will continue to be complete in him forever forever. 
And, and, and then Paul, in the latter part of verse 10, and we'll deal with this perhaps next week. I'm not sure if I'm going to move into a more Christmas-themed series of messages. I can't decide. This is so good. I, how do you get away from this? I don't know. I'm not sure that you want to talk about circumcision at Christmas, but <laughs> that's my next verse. But there's a lot of good theology there too, okay? You know? Yeah, we got to get through some imagery issues there a little bit, but we're going to do it. It's going to be gay. Moms and dads, don't worry. Pastor's not going to go rogue on you. <laughs> You'll have a difficult time at lunch. What was the pastor talking about today? Hey, mom, hey, dad, what's going on? Do you know Jesus Christ? Now, now I, if you're the redeemed of God, my hope today is that you're leaving church today knowing him better than you ever have. That's my job right? I'm not doing my job if you leave here not knowing him better than you did when you arrived this morning. You, you ought to know him more, so you do, right? The word, the word has been proclaimed. I pray that the Holy Spirit has blessed the preaching of his word. That's my hope. So when I ask people, do you know him, I want to make certain that you're knowing him even more than you knew him before. But if you don't know him, I want you to think about what it is that you're going to claim when you stand before God, because you're going to do it. Someday, every knee will bow. Rome, Revelations 5. That's what it says. Every knee will bow. That's either going to be willingly or unwillingly, perhaps. But you're going to bow. Do you know him? Where, where else were you going to find something that's as complete as Jesus Christ? Now, you may think to yourself, come on, it can't be that way. It is that way. I didn't write it. Do you know him? Call upon his name. My prayer is that God would grant you the gift of faith. Trust in Jesus Christ. Turn to him and know him fully. Now, son of David, have mercy on me. And he did. And he always will. Forever and ever and ever and ever. Let's pray. Our blessed Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words that are contained in this passage. We thank you and rejoice and praise you that you are the rescuing, ransoming God. That you loved us so much that you would send your Son, that you would become the expression that Christ would become the expression of you in bodily form and all the fullness of the deity and that all that he did was for my benefit. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for loving us in an immeasurable way. It's hard to even fathom it. Help our finite minds to grasp these things. Help us to cherish these truths. Help us to hold on to them, treasure them more than anything that we have. Bless us this day, we pray. Strengthen us, help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, help us to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, help us to be the people of God that you would have us to be. Work in the lives, we pray, of those who do not know you, call them to yourself, grant them faith, we pray in the name of Christ, amen. May God bless you.